We started a series called The Jonah Files two weeks ago, and uh, although this isn't the book of the sermon, if you read this, and I did over the summer and loved it, uh, then you will know more about it than I do. And so there's uh, plenty of stuff to be recommended there, and you can get that up at the bookstore. The Jonah Complex, that book is called. This is called The Jonah Files, and um, I thoroughly recommend that you do catch up if you've missed one or two. You can get them on our podcast. We even have them in, in video now, and that's, that's great to do. So this, today's talk is called The Sign of Jonah, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit, but first off, let's get into the text itself. So we're looking at Jonah chapter 2, but I'm going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17. Let's get the story. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. You will recall that uh, Jonah, a prophet of God, was told by God to go to Nineveh and preach a message. He said, no way, Jose, or words of effect, and he got on a boat and headed off in exactly the opposite direction. But God was determined that Jonah was going to deliver this message for reasons we will see in the next two or three weeks. And so a huge storm kind of waylaid that boat, and it ended up with Jonah in the water fighting for his life. And we pick up the story there. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the very mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, onto dry land. So there we have the text for today. The sign of Jonah then, what is that? Well, actually, it's a reference to a statement, a conversation that Jesus has in Matthew 12. Some of you will recall the story. We're not going to read the whole story now, but essentially, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and uh, the scribes and the Pharisees really don't like what they see happening. They really have got a bad feeling. They're full of jealousy. They're full of self-righteous pride. And they do not like the popularity that our Lord Jesus is beginning to enjoy with ordinary men and women. So they go to him. They want to test him. And they say to him, okay, all right, Jesus, show us a sign. Now, Jesus had been doing all sorts of healings and miracles. It was well known, you know. In fact, before he was known as the Savior Messiah, he was known as the, you know, the, the prophet and the teacher 
and the healer, all those kind of things. And Jesus is, to be frank, he's disgusted with them. And he's not sure, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. And he says, a sign, <laughs> you ask for a sign, you wicked and adulterous nation. Wow, that's a smart way of making friends and influencing people. So he says to them, you wicked and adulterous nation, you want a sign, you are going to have but one sign, and that is the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be buried in the earth for three days and nights, and yet will rise again, and so on and so forth. That's the reference, the sign of Jonah. Now, Muslims, some of you may know this, have a problem with this. In fact, they have problems with Christians. And what they say about Jesus, whom they revere, they regard him as a major prophet. They even regard him as a major healing prophet. Many Muslims will turn to Jesus for healing. But what they say about us as Christians is they say, look, you know, you say that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Wrong. You know, they ignore the fact that Jesus, as was common with those who were crucified, was beaten to within an inch of his life. They ignore the fact that Jesus was then crucified, and this is what the Roman centurion and his mates did in Jerusalem on Fridays. Which day is it? Friday. Oh my gosh, another load of crucifixions. They, this was their day job. This is what they did. They knew how to crucify people. It was barbaric. In fact, even their own philosophers and leaders said, you know, if, if we are a civilized nation, why do we crucify people? You know, we call ourselves civilized, but we Romans ought to, you know, okay, we've got to dispose of these criminals, but why crucify them? It is a barbaric way. So there was even some debate amongst Roman society at the time. But they did it, they knew how to do it, and it worked. And finally, what is overlooked is the fact that a spear was thrust into Jesus' side. It's well documented. Josephus, a Jewish historian, refers to this. And out of that came blood and water, or what appeared to be blood and water, which is one of the first signs of the death process, rigor mortis setting in. So Jesus is buried. So, Jesus died. But what, what is said against Christians in this moment is, well, Jesus himself said that he was going to be like Jonah. That just as Jonah was inside a whale for three days, three nights, then, you know, so he will be like that. So the implication, or the inference rather, is that, you know, Jesus survived somehow. He survived the, the flogging of a lifetime. He survived crucifixion. He survived being speared in the side. He survived being buried. And so they say that's why we're wrong. What's difficult with that is actually, I personally believe, that's my own opinion, make of it what you will, is that Jonah died. That Jonah wasn't alive in the belly of the whale. Oh yes, he prayed from within the whale. But, you know, unfortunately, when we think of Joan and the Whale, we've sung too many kids' songs and we've seen too many cartoons. I watched one on uh, one of the, a website that I get some downloads from uh, just recently, and he even built a campfire in the whale in this cartoon. <laughs> I, 
You know, I, I really struggle with the idea that he was living, you know, uh, that he had food, he had water, that he wasn't burnt by stomach acid, and he had flipping Wi-Fi and a, you know, O2 uh, signal. I just don't get it. And actually, the text we've just read, if we hadn't already kind of decided that, yeah, Jonah, it's a fairy, it's a, you know, kid's story, he's alive in the whale, you know, he's singing sort of Father Abraham and all the rest of it. Actually, the text, I believe, gives some credence to my position on this. So, for example, a couple of little illustrations here, going back to the text. Thank you, Matt, if we can just go back to the beginning. Verse 17, it says here, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That expression, three days and three nights, does not translate well into our culture and our language, because it is a literary device which means he's really, really dead. Really, really dead. So, uh, I, you know, it's difficult to communicate in our language and our, our vocabulary, but if, if I was telling you of, of some poor soul who threw themselves off the, you know, the, the shard in central London and went splat on the pavement, and you in shock and surprise and horror said, so did he die? Okay, it might be a stupid question, but did he die? I would react quite possibly by saying, what do you mean, did he die? Three days and nights he died. Do you understand the nuance of what I'm trying to say here? I mean, that obviously isn't part of our culture, our vocabulary and our grammar, all the rest of it, but it's like, three days and nights he died. Yes, duh, dummy, he died. Now, we miss that. We don't understand that. We don't grasp the nuance of that. Then in, in actually verse uh, 2 of chapter 2, Jonah says this, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Now, quite clearly, as he is swallowed, Jonah prays a prayer. Hands up here, if you were being consumed by a shark or swallowed by a whale, how many of you here think you might just gasp a prayer as he went down? Four of you. My gosh, you faithless generation. <laughs> Come on. God. Now, I want to be really, I mean, this is family here, right? And if you're a visitor, I'm going to count you as family. If it was me, it would be expletive, 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 and then it would be, God help me. Right? Okay, that, you're, you're all holier than I, but that would be me. Now, if you think for a minute that Jonah at that moment penned this wonderful psalm as he's being, going down the gullet of the whale, I, I humbly suggest you're mistaken. This is a beautiful literary device in itself. This is a psalm. It bears many likenesses to Psalm 18 and others. It begin, it's a particular style of psalm, and it begins with a, with a, very, with a classic psalmist phrase, in my distress, in my distress. I am sure that as Jonah was swallowed, having just been you know, beaten up, thrown into the sea, half drowned, he says as much, and then top it all, he gets swallowed. You know, there's a, a shred of life in him, and I'm sure he prayed. This was, of course, written after the events, and there was some sort of embellishment and all the rest of it. There was some, you know, it was turned into a gracious psalm, but as he was going down, he didn't, down the, the gullet of the way, he didn't sort of whip out a a quill pen and say, I feel a psalm coming on. <laughs> of course not. No, he went, oh my God, my God, my God. 
But the reality is there is some truth there. There are some interesting things. I don't want to over-egg it, but there are some very, very important, two very important things I want you to catch in this psalm because they are critical waypoints into the thought process of a drowning man who actually ends up being saved. The first one, oh yeah, let me just clarify, just finish, to finish that point. He says, from deep in the realm of the, de- of the dead, I call for help. For deep in the realm of the dead, I call to help. The realm of the dead means Sheol. It is that place beyond death itself. It's the place of shades. You know, the Jewish uh, mentality really didn't know what was after death. It wasn't full of paradise and glory. It, It really wasn't. That hadn't been developed. But there was a strong movement to know that we will be resurrected. We they did believe that life went on after death. But there was this sense that, you know, you went to the land of shades and, 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 and gray, and it was not a pleasant place. It was not hell, and it certainly wasn't heaven. But Jonah himself says that he was in that place. He didn't say, I nearly died. That was a close thing. He actually said, I was in that place. And it's real, bro. I was there. In that place, he cried out to God. Verse 4, an important moment. Part of his prayer consisted of confession. He said, I have been banished from your sight. That word banished is interesting. It means being sent into exile. And you've been sent into exile. You've been banished as a punishment. It's not a nice thing. To be banished, to be sent into exile, is punishment for sin. And this is the first time in this book where Jonah, this, dare I say, self-righteous prophet who thought he knew better than God, who when God said, go to Nineveh, he said, no way, I'm off, and headed off in the opposite direction. This is the first acknowledgement that he was actually in sin. It was an acknowledgement that he had been punished for sin by God. That being now in in the, the land of Sheol, the place of shades, the realm of the dead, was just punishment for his sin. So he has had, what we were talking about last week, he's had a wake up call of gargantuan proportions. Unfortunately, it's the wrong side of death. You know, Hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But he nonetheless confesses his sin. He realizes that God's meted out his righteous judgment upon him. And he prays. Even in that place, he prays. Hold that thought for the next three weeks. And then we have, at the end of verse 9, this statement. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. This is the pivotal statement, and I mentioned this in, first, in the first week of this teaching. This is the pivotal statement in this book. The whole thing, and actually in, ter- in literary terms, the book of Jonah is unique, it's narrative, but it's beautifully written. It's written in, in, in the most exquisite prose. It's written with a, a wonderful kind of conciseness, and clarity, and the whole thing kind of revolves around this pivotal statement 
Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, many Bible scholars, as a point of interest here, have said that this, we can argue about this, but they say this is the pivotal statement of the Scriptures, the whole book. That everything before and after actually could be summed up in this one little phrase, five words, salvation comes from the Lord. So there we have it. So my theory in answer to that kind of, I mean, I don't get into great flaming rows with Muslims about this, but, but I would say that the sign of Jonah is really a reference to, to Jonah's experience of the land of the shades, of, going, of dying. It says in the scripture that Jesus went down to hell. He preached there and then before he was raised. But I actually think that there is this great connection between these two books. There's also another little interesting connection. This prophet Jonah came from a place called Amittai Getai. I probably got that wrong. It's three miles north of Jesus' hometown. Jonah was a local hero to Jesus. Jesus would have grown up knowing about. I mean, what's three miles from here? London Colney? What's that? Is that two and a half miles? Sandridge, something like that. that. So Jesus would have grown up, you know, bouncing on his mother's knee, playing with this, that, and the other, hearing stories, telling stories, and all the rest of it. And Jonah, they would have known that story. It had been told time again because he was a local boy who made good. Interesting. I think Jesus had a bit of a soft spot for Jonah because of the extraordinary journey that that man went on and the extraordinary fruit of his ministry at the end of it. So if we have this prototype saviour in Jonah, this guy who you know, goes through death, ends up going to Nineveh, and as we'll see in the next coming two or three weeks, the city is turned around, actually revival breaks up there. Life comes to the, a place that was darkness personified. If we see Jonah as this prototype saviour, in Jesus we get the real deal. The real deal. And I'd love you now just to follow me into 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll just um, make a couple of points out of this before we wind things up. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church, a church that's very gifted, uh, lots of things happening, most of it good, but also some you know, ropey things as well. But Paul writes to them, and he says this in verse 3 of chapter 15. He says, What I received, I passed to you as of first importance. First importance. You know, whatever else we might consider about our faith, whatever else we might be drawn to be involved in, whatever else we might be called to and, and, and engage with, whatever ministries or service or, or aspirations we have in terms of serving God, everything hinges on this point. It is of first importance. This should be our interpretive key, the bedrock of all we do. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins that was why when we were reading that little and referring uh, to, to the Matthew 12 thing, there is this reference to Scripture because Jesus' death and 
resurrection were prophesied according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters all at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You see, Jesus' death and his resurrection are absolutely central to our faith. faith. They, are, they are the reason behind that statement that we can say salvation belongs to the Lord. Three little things I want to just pull out for you to grasp hold of in this passage. First of all, only God can save. You know, what, whatever plans you have for your life, whatever things you aspire to, whatever dreams you have, only God can save. You know, I have dreams. I have a number of dreams, things that I hope will happen. One of my dreams is that I hope that, uh, you know, I will, go, I will grow old and enjoy my grandchildren until a ripe old age, and I, I dream that I'll, I'll go out in style. I'll be feeding the ducks in Verulamian Park. And all of a sudden, I'll say, ooh, I feel a bit off. Boom, bang, gone. <laughs> that's my dream. That's the way I want to go. That's my dream. Anybody else have a, find that attractive? Of course you do. It may be, though, that, you know, I'll be honest, I, I may be diagnosed with cancer next week. And I may have a long and difficult time. We're, we're this week, you know, in the midst of all the, the high feast and, and joy and the ministry opportunities we have had over this last month, we've also been grieving the death of dear Emily, who, who struggled with cancer. And uh, her, her funeral is on, on Thursday. And some of us have to go through some very, very difficult things that we wouldn't want to wish on anyone, much less ourselves. This life is a war zone. This world is fallen, and we are called to be light in darkness. But salvation comes from the Lord, and only God could save. So whatever you put your dreams and aspirations in, a good education, great car, wonderful partner in life, etc., 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 these aren't bad things. These are good things. Pray for them. God bless you. May all your dreams come true. But the truth of the matter is, Whatever we put our hope in, the only one that delivers is God himself. It is his initiative that saves us. Christ Jesus died for our sins. Who could have dreamt that God himself would pick up the tab when it came to your sin and mine? We couldn't even dare to ask it. God, you're right in your judgment against me. I'm a sinner. Would you mind sort of picking up the tab? We, we, we couldn't presume to ask it because such is the depth of the offense that Christ himself died for our sins. It says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. It is his prerogative, his initiative. The second thing, if only God can save, the second thing is this, only God has overcome death. Only God has overcome death. If Jonah was resurrected, make of that of what you will. You may just want to hang on to that thought about living in a whale. Great. But those that have been resurrected since, I was on YouTube, there are amazing resurrection stories that I have met people and spoken to people who have seen the dead raised. But Jesus himself, the scripture says, was the firstborn among the dead. That's not to say that there hadn't been resurrection before that, but with Jesus, with him dying for our sin, 
dying as the man-God, Emmanuel, God with us, what happens then is he then has, having overcome death, has paved a way for us so that we can all, through his grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion, and his power, be raised from the dead. That's my hope. That's my, my firm hope. And whatever, whatever other dreams I may have and that you may have, that one is something that we hold dear as Christians, that in Christ we will be raised from the dead. That, and even if you're not a Christian, I, I humbly suggest to you, and you may not like me saying this, but I humbly suggest to you that you know deep in your gut that it doesn't end with death. There is more to this than meets the eye. You intuitively know that. You may run from that thought. You may not like that thought. Intellectually, it may offend you. From what you know of science and biology, it may disgust you. But deep in your guts, you know you will live in one form or another beyond death. So, Jesus himself was the firstborn among the dead, and he has overcome death. And the good news is this, only God gives life. He's died for our sins, he's overcome death. End of story? No, there's one more. He gives life. Jesus said, I have come that you, 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 and me may have life and have it abundantly. He gives his abundant life, he lays it down, he sacrifices it, and in so, so doing, substitutes himself and dies the sin that we should. He, does the, he, he takes Jonah's place, where Jonah is banished to the land of shades for his sin and his disobedience. He does that, he takes that, so that you and I walk scot-free. Someone pretend you're a Pentecostal and shout, hallelujah. Hallelujah. There's some fire there, good. <laughs> so there we have it. The story of Jonah is a story of disobedience, a story of confusion, terror, fear, death, life, reluctant obedience, amazement, when salvation comes to those who don't deserve it, and goes on then to build and show and demonstrate the character of God who, Jonah says, is full of grace and mercy, full of compassion, not wishing that any should be lost. It's a wonderful story. And I want to take a leaf out of that book. I want to be among those. And I, I see myself, I'd like to be more like Jesus, but to be honest with you, I see myself a little too much of the Jonah in me. God sets out a path before me, and I think, oh my gosh, I don't fancy that. Sometimes I'm happy about it, but other times I think, oh dear, I don't really want to do this. I've got a bad feeling about this. I mean, this Thursday, a little example we have an event going on in Starbucks down in Chiswell Green at 7 o'clock. I hope that you'll all be there. 
And I want you to know, if it matters to you that I say this, that actually I have, I have for a long time now been very disappo disappointed with Starbucks as a company. My disappointment goes back to two years when they reneged, when Howard Schultz, their founder, reneged on a contractual agreement to appear at the Willow Creek Summit in 2011. Now, I'm on the board of Willow Creek. That cost us tens of thousands of pounds and dollars. I'm not on the US, but I'm on the UK board. And I was so ticked off about this. I'm just being honest here. I was ticked off about it because Starbucks folded because of the, the pressure of a small group, a small but vocal group of gay action people who said that Starbucks shouldn't associate with, with Christians because of prejudice and all the rest of it. Now, that sounds to me as if there is a conversation that needed to take place there. But they showed no moral fiber whatsoever. And when, when we said to Starbucks, when Bill Hybels, the, you know, the chairman of the WCA, said to Howard Schultz, okay, if that's the board's decision, fine. And what's more? Because we're Christians, we're not going to pursue you. We're not going to take legal action against you. You can just go scot-free. Do you know what their PR department did then? They came back to us and they said, oh, quite a lot of Christians around, aren't they? Do you think you could put out a statement that actually it was because of a sort of a double-up, a mix-up, and it was all a bit crazy? And we said, what? No way! We will, tell, we will say what it is. And they didn't like that at all. They were really cross with us. So my esteem of Starbucks as a company is pretty low. And then after months of, of negotiation, we've arranged to be able to do these kind of live events down there in Starbucks. I, I still go into Starbucks. Why? Because I love the people. I love the people who work there. I know people who manage Starbucks. I love them. And then a week ago, we found out that they're, they're avoiding corporation tax. You know, I, I'm not in the least bit surprised. It's not illegal. We need to be writing hundreds of letters to our MPs saying, change the law, it sucks. Starbucks aren't a Christian organization. They will do what they need to do according to the law. And if the law's wrong, we need to, we, we need to write to our MPs. And that's what I intend to do. Join me. But I know this. The self-righteousness in me wants me to say, right, I'm never going to go and have a caramel frappuccino with cream again. <laughs> and then I go to a personal crisis. Oh, but I really like those things. <laughs> it would be, that's what I want to do. I, wanna, I don't want to go to Nineveh because there are people working there, people who have jobs there, who, people are stopping there for refreshment. I want to go off to Tarshish and say, right, I'm taking my cricket back home, and off I go. But we as Christians, you see, are to follow our leader. Was there corruption in the temple in Jerusalem? You better believe it. In fact, we know from the word of God there was. But every day, Jesus was in there, speaking out against the scribes and Pharisees, but ministering to the people, because that's where the people were. We have to kick the darkness until it bleeds light. And our light, the light that we carry, that the scripture says we have in every single one of us, the light of Christ, that light shines best in darkness. I found a pencil torch 
You know what I mean? A pencil torch. This is absolutely true this week. In the back of a drawer. Came out of a cracker. Now, if you turn that on in the garden, nothing. Take it under the, in the closet underneath the stairs and suddenly it gives light. Light works best in darkness. We are carriers of the light. Don't run for Tarshish, head for Nineveh. That's why I, even if I'm the only one, will be in Starbucks this Sunday with my family this Thursday at 7 o'clock. And I hope to have a great evening and I hope to have conversations and I hope to pray for one or two people. Shh. Because no one tells me where I can or can't go in the name of Christ. We are the carriers of Christ's light for the world. And the world needs it. Not a bunch of Christians like this. You've got it. Let's take it where it's needed. All right? And Jesus, our Father, the Spirit of God, was saying to Jonah, the great prophet of Israel, take the light to the darkness, dummy. And when, they, when he didn't listen, Father got in his face sent him back. Salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord. Let's stand and pray. I've horribly overrun, but it would be good to finish with a worship song. So Sam, would you mind coming up here? Let me just pray now. Father, God, I want to say thank you to you for your presence. Lord, we would bask in your light to the end of our days and beyond. Lord God, you call us to be light in darkness and turn with the light towards darkness wherever we find it and to be light and to be personal. And Lord God, we thank you for that Jonah got there in the end and that 120,000 people who had the judgment of God on them turned to you and embraced you and repented. Lord God, oh, that we would see such fruit and success now, Lord, we pray that you would bless us, encourage us, and let that light shine bright within us. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.